Welcome to another edition of Tisky Sour on Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Lots of stories tonight. Russia attacking a nuclear plant. The Tory chairman, who is still catering to the super rich. Finland and Sweden warm towards NATO. Does that suggest that Putin's geopolitical gamble has backfired? And the International Criminal Court opening an investigation into the war in Ukraine. We are on day nine of Russia's war on Ukraine, and Russia's advance continues, even if slower than they had hoped. Nine days into the war, Russian troops have still not reached the capital, Kiev, and the only city they control is Kherson in the south. One success the Russians have had is creating a land corridor from Russia to Crimea. Along that route is the port city of Mariupol, which is now under siege. Russian forces unable to take the city have cut it off from the outside world. Communications are down, as are water, heating and electricity. They've all been switched off. It's a context in which Vladimir Zelensky has pleaded for talks with Putin. What do you want from us? Go away from our land. You don't want to leave now? Sit down with me at the negotiation table. I'm available. Sit with me. But not at 30 metres like you welcome Macron and Schultz and others. I'm your neighbour. You don't need to keep me at 30 metre distance. I don't bite. I'm a normal man. Sit down with me. Let's talk. What are you afraid of? Putin is refusing to meet Zelensky in person and continues to blame everyone but Russia for escalations. And I would also advise them not to escalate the situation, not to introduce any restrictions. We fulfil all our obligations and will continue to fulfil them. We don't see any necessity to escalate the situation and worsen our relations. All our actions, if they're taken, are taken exclusively as a response to unfriendly actions towards the Russian Federation. I think everyone should consider normalizing relations and cooperate normally. There seems to be little common ground between the two leaders, one whose country is occupying the other. But spokespeople for the Ukrainian side in negotiations in Belarus left some room for hope today. They are pushing actually us for the uh, uh, humanitarian missions and ceasefires because this brings too much damage to the image of the Russia uh, because they are bombing civilians and it's obvious now to every, every, every person in the world. So I think that uh, their main uh, uh, target for, for the closest sessions is to try to show that they are not so cruel as they're being seen right now by the whole world. That Putin seems cruel in the eyes of the world is beyond doubt. This drone footage is from Borodyanka on the outskirts of Kyiv. It confirms the fears that a drawn-out campaign would lead Putin to resort to mass shelling of civilian areas in a bid to wear down the population. It's a style of war that has so far led to at least 331 civilian deaths. That's the figure confirmed by the UN. The true toll is likely to be much higher. And images like those from Borodyanka could be seen in multiple towns and cities across the country. This is the aftermath of shelling in Iprin, a suburb to the northwest of Kyiv. And this is Cherniv, a city to the north of Kyiv. The BBC reported at least 47 civilians have been killed in that city so far. This strategy of indiscriminately shelling and bombing cities until they submit is nothing new to Vladimir Putin. In late 1999, Russian forces laid siege to Grozny, the capital of Chechnya. 
There, in a bid to destroy the Chechen separatist movement, Russian troops resorted to surrounding the city and indiscriminately bombing and shelling Grozny for over a month. Five to 8,000 civilians were killed. The UN called Grozny the most destroyed city on earth. More recently, a Russian bombing campaign was used to help Bashir al-Assad win back control of Aleppo. Cluster bombs were dropped in residential areas and Russia, at the time, promised that indiscriminate airstrikes would continue until all rebels left the city. So, is this the brutal strategy Putin is planning for cities in Ukraine? I spoke earlier to Anatole Levin, a policy analyst at the Quincy Institute, who has written extensively on Russia's campaigns in Chechnya, Syria, and now Ukraine. Well, it's not that Putin is is repeating anything. It's the nature of urban warfare. The US urban battles have been essentially no different. The point is that if the other side digs in, in cities, then invariably the attacking side has to use firepower to dislodge them because otherwise you simply lose too many of your own men. And in the process, of course, large parts of the cities are destroyed and any civilians who haven't managed to flee are in grave danger and there will be heavy civilian casualties. This, I think, was what the Russians really hoped to avoid in Ukraine, because, of course, it's absolutely disastrous for their political agenda uh, in any areas of the country that they are hoping to to control in the longer run, because they will need local support. They will need some, at least, local representatives who are willing to help them. And obviously, reducing the cities to rubble is not a good way of, you know, of starting. And I think the two things may have happened. One is, I mean, as uh, I think is, is now clear, Putin and his planners uh, completely underestimated the strength, the courage and the determination of Ukrainian resistance. They didn't think that the Ukrainians would fight like Chechens, but in fact, the Ukrainians have fought like Chechens. To some degree, it's an action of, of last resort or not their first choice, what they would like to be doing now. But it does seem that they are choosing to, their strategy now is to bombard these these cities with artillery and, and, and with airstrikes. What is the military logic of that? What's the point in destroying a city with fairly undiscriminate bombing, especially if this is a territory which they ultimately want to, well, take over or at least have a lot of influence in? America has done it repeatedly. If your orders are to capture a city, you use firepower to do so. The criminal error uh, is that of Putin and his advisors who expected the Ukrainians to surrender easily. But um, as far as the military logic is concerned, uh, it's obvious. I think it was Eisenhower who said that uh, you know a military commander who sacrifices the lives of his men unnecessarily has basically betrayed his duties as a commander. You know, generals' first duty is to their men, not to the civilians on the other side. Unfortunately, uh, you know, this is the nature of war. You're one of the thinkers and writers who still thinks a negotiated settlement is is possible and potentially sooner rather than later. Could could you talk about where you see a potential opening for that? What could that possibly look like at this point in time? Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, has called for a, a peace settlement. And he has hinted, though not stated as an explicit offer, that maybe a treaty of neutrality could be on the table. And that is one of Russia's principal demands. In other words, you know, ruling out Ukrainian membership of NATO. Now, Russia has other demands on the table, some of which are unacceptable, some of which are reasonable enough, only in the sense that actually Russia, uh, Ukraine has lost these territories already. So Russia is asking for recognition of Russian sovereignty over Crimea. 
and asking for a Ukrainian recognition of the independence of the Donbass republics. Well, on Crimea, I mean, every analyst has been saying ever since Russia, I mean, in private at least, since Russia annexed it in 2014, that uh, Ukraine can never get this territory back. And of course, because it holds a, a pro-Russian population and Russia, one of Russia's largest naval bases, Russia will never surrender Crimea without being you know, completely defeated in war. Now, on the Donbass, it is conceivable that one could have a, a compromise whereby both sides offered to return to the Minsk process, whereby the Donbass republics could then offer in principle to renegotiate to negotiate their return to Ukraine on a federal basis. As far as Russia's demands for demilitarization are concerned, well, um, Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, has suggested that that might consist of a ban on missiles stationed in, in Ukraine. In other words, something not unlike perhaps the, the deal that ended the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I think if Russia is sincere in its demands, and if Ukraine is uh, prepared to look at you know, the realities uh, of its situation, then um, a peace agreement should be possible in a rational world. But of course, you know, we don't live in a rational world, and especially since Russia's you know, invasion, obviously. I mean, the, the feeling against Russia, very understandably, in Ukraine uh, is so high that um, perhaps it would be very difficult for, for the Ukrainians to, to compromise. How do you judge the effectiveness of Western sanctions so far? And do you think they are well-placed to work to have their desired effect? Or do you think they could also escalate the conflict in a more dangerous direction? They are going to have a really severe effect on the Russian economy. I mean, the estimates that I've read for the decline in the Russian economy in the coming year, uh, you know, range from a low of 7% to a high of 20%. And obviously, I mean, that will increase public discontent in Russia. And that is also, of course, why um, the Russian regime is is now cracking down on what's left of the independent media, arresting large numbers of people, apparently considering martial law. So the the pressure is very real. But equally, I mean, Putin and his inner group, which is a very small group, I mean, maybe as few as six people who have planned this war, are clearly determined to get some kind of success out of it. So I think the question becomes, and you know, this is actually now being raised by the Biden administration, whether you are aiming to use intense economic pressure on Russia to bring about an off-ramp, as it's called, or a, a golden bridge, as Sun Tzu called it, a, you know, a diplomatic solution to this conflict and Russian withdrawal, uh, or whether uh, the aim of the sanctions is to punish Russia so badly that the Putin regime falls. Well, if the latter, then this, you know, that would take a long, long time to have effect because clearly you know, this is a very determined and ruthless bunch of people. But if the former, then given that the, the economic sanctions are much deeper than I think Moscow expected and much more damaging, I think it could have an effect. Uh, now, uh, however, I mean, in the meantime, you've had some quite surprising Western voices, including General Philip Breedlove, who was the US NATO commander in Europe, calling for a NATO no-fly zone. In other words, to send... American and other air forces into action against the Russian air force in Ukraine. Well, that's war, and the Russians will undoubtedly retaliate. Uh, and one of the ways they could retaliate, the Russian army on the ground is, of course, not not as strong as many people thought. But Russia does have an enormous store uh, of um, intermediate cruise missiles, which they would then start firing into American air bases in Europe. 
Now, I think at that point, you would see European support for American policy collapse. You will not get the Germans, the French, the others supporting this. But I think, I mean, the, the Biden administration has made very clear that it, it, it is not going to go down that, that route. But I mean, it, it is, as I say, surprising that, um, you know, uh, people formerly in, in very senior positions should essentially be calling for World War Three. Just briefly on, on no-fly zones, because as you say, it doesn't seem like the people actually in power want one, but there are lots of people calling for one. You said with a certain degree of certainty, if, if NATO were to shoot down Russian planes, then the Russian option would be to launch cruise missiles at American bases in European countries. Presumably, there'd also be a fear on the part of Putin that if he did that escalation, then there would be a countermeasure. I think it would be too risky personally to go for this no-fly zone, but it does seem like it's more unpredictable than potentially your answer made out as to what he would do next if that were the case. It's no good going on and on and on, as the Western media has been doing, uh, talking about, you know, has Putin gone mad, his irrationality, the fact that he's, you know, isolated from all but his inner staff, much of which is true, by the way. Um, and then saying, oh, but don't worry, you know, sure, we can shoot down uh, the Russian Air Force. Sure, we can go to war on behalf of Ukraine, but the Russians won't retaliate. Sorry, I mean, it's that kind of thinking which has got into us into this mess. You know, I was reading somewhere other FT, I think, that you know, European leaders were incredulous that Russia had launched this war. How can they have been incredulous? They've been warned of this to some extent for 25 years. You've heard um, Russians and indeed uh, Western experts saying that if you try to turn Ukraine into a military ally of the West, there will be a war. There is no excuse now for, for you know, complacency and saying, oh, the Russians wouldn't do this. They would do it. That was Anatole Levin speaking to me earlier today. Europe's largest nuclear power plant has been bombed or shelled by Russia. Zaporizhia power plant located in southeast Ukraine came under sustained attack with part of it eventually bursting into flames. 100 armed Russian vehicles stormed a barricade and fought to gain control of the power plant. Then the shelling began, eventually causing a fire near to a reactor that burned for several hours before it was put out. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky immediately denounced the action as nuclear terrorism. I'm appealing to all Ukrainians, to all Europeans, to all the people who know the word Chernobyl, to those who know how much misery and victims the nuclear power plant explosion brought. It was a global disaster. Hundreds of thousands of people were dealing with the consequences. Dozens of thousands of people were evacuated. Russia wants to repeat it, and it's already repeating it. But it is six times bigger now. We are warning everybody, not a single state apart from Russia has ever shelled nuclear reactors. It is for the first time in our history, in the history of humankind, that the terrorist state turned to nuclear terrorism. Later in a formal address, he reiterated the point and suggested the Russians knew exactly what they were doing. Russian troops attacked the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. It's maybe six times the size of Chernobyl. The Russian tanks knew what they were firing at. They directly hit the plant. This is terror on an unprecedented level. Three Ukrainian soldiers were killed and two more injured in the attack. After the blaze was extinguished, the Ukrainian State Emergency Service reported that radiation levels in the area remained within normal range. This has been confirmed by the International Atomic Energy Agency and the United States, and the Russian occupants have now allowed Ukrainian workers back onto the site, although they are apparently working, quote, under the barrels of machine guns and are physically and mentally exhausted.
It all sounds like a very near miss with a high risk of catastrophic nuclear meltdown, but was it? The Zaporizhia power plant is very different in its design from Chernobyl. Unlike Chernobyl, the six nuclear reactors at Zaporizhia are pressurized water reactors. This means that there is much less uranium in the reactors, meaning that the fission reactions that take place inside them can't cause the kind of chain reaction that led to the Chernobyl disaster. The core of the reactors are also contained within a sealed steel pressure vessel, the walls of which are seven inches thick. It's designed to withstand earthquakes and other natural disasters. It's less clear they would stand up to missiles. Robert Grimes, Professor of Material Physics at Imperial College London, told The Telegraph, It is not designed to withstand explosive ordnance such as artillery shells. While it seems to me unlikely that such an impact would result in a Chernobyl-like nuclear event, a breach of the pressure vessel would be followed by the release of coolant pressure, scattering nuclear fuel debris across the vicinity of the plant and a cloud of coolant with some entrained particles reaching further. What's more worrying is that attacks might damage the coolant system, which could lead instead to a Fukushima-style disaster. That's because coolant is required even when the reactors are taken offline. In Fukushima, the loss of the coolant system led to free nuclear meltdowns. Aaron Bastani, I'm going to bring you in now. Welcome to the show. There were potentially some exaggeration, I think, about the, the risks of sort of nuclear catastrophe this morning. But obviously, shelling taking place near a nuclear plant is, is not reassuring to anyone. What did you make of, of this development? It's a funny one, Michael. I mean, obviously, you don't want to be taken out of context. So clearly, shelling a nuclear power station is obviously an incredibly bad idea. It should be off limits to all parties. But for me, the response was really instructive. And I, I, the sort of panicky response that you saw on social media, on Twitter, actually often from the very same characters who are often performing the same, the same affect and emotions during COVID uh, was really worrying. And, and I do think that the longer this war goes on, the more tragedies that we see, the more I think people need to be eagle-eyed on this stuff because the truth matters. And my interpretation of this was, from some quarters, that people were seeing this as, a, oh, this, sh this should provide a license for NATO to now become involved. And I, and I think that is, that is my concern, is that there's an event like this, which isn't necessarily reported in its entirety or accurately, and it escalates massively, and various interests or groups overstep the mark, make a mistake, aren't thinking rationally, and we have a situation which spirals out of control. That, 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 for me, is the big takeaway in my read on, on, on what happened in that situation. I mean, maybe you disagree, but I think, like you say, it's a different kind of power station to Chernobyl. It seems much safer. If there is a problem by virtue of the reactors not being able to cool, it's going to take a very long time to unfold. This isn't going to be like, you know, Hiroshima and a mushroom cloud. So I think that the misleading information, including it should be said from Ukrainian national representatives, is deeply problematic. You know, if you're a verified politician on social media, it doesn't matter if you're Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, a Russian politician or a Ukrainian politician. When the stakes are this high and you're articulating untrue information, I think there should be disincentives to doing that. I think there should be costs. I think we are on the same page about this. All I'd say is that I think what happened was that the Ukrainian leaders, I mean, the Ukrainian leaders, they want to encourage and incite NATO to go in. That's not a secret. They keep asking for a no-fly zone. So I do feel like whenever a situation happens like this, you will get the Ukrainians doing some really good social media content saying we're about to you know, be in the Third World War. That's their line. We're already in the Third World War. 
might feel like that if you're in Ukraine. We aren't actually already in a third world war and this could get much bigger and much worse than it already is. So we've got to remember that. But it won't feel like that in, in Ukraine because they are already in a war. The reason it's not a world war is because it's not happening everywhere. What's happening in Ukraine isn't happening everywhere. So I, I have every sympathy really for Zelensky and the other Ukrainian politicians on Twitter who were saying this would have been 10 times worse than Chernobyl. Like, I, I don't think I can judge them for being somewhat misleading. I do think, though, that journalists and then British politicians should not just repeat that as if it's gospel, because we have to recognise that while we feel... Well, while I, I feel, I imagine most of our audience do feel sympathy with, with Zelensky and the Ukrainian government who have been subject to a war of aggression, they do have an incentive to exaggerate what is going on. For you know, This is not conspiratorial. It's because they have very openly said they want NATO to get involved with no-fly zone. So I do feel like this morning, the whole risk of this nuclear power plant going into a Chernobyl-style meltdown was a bit overplayed. It's also the case that while, well, I mean, I don't think Russia should have invaded Ukraine, but even if you do invade a country, I think you should avoid shelling anywhere that's remotely close to a nuclear power plant. So that does seem irresponsible to me. At the same time, I think there was a report, some reportage about this sort of, I think the Americans have now called it nuclear terrorism, as if to say that the Russians targeted this specifically to create that threat. And I think actually, if you're invading a country, again, they shouldn't have done this, they shouldn't have invaded Ukraine. But if you are invading a country, you are going to try and take key infrastructure. And a nuclear power plant, just like a gas-fired power plant, is key infrastructure. So we've got to accept, or expect at least, the Russians to be, to be taking places like this. Finally, my final point I'll say about this is from, you know me, I'm not an expert in nuclear power, but from what I've been hearing from sort of reading expert analysis today, is the bigger issue is not so much does a bomb or does a you know some artillery shelling hit a nuclear power plant. The issue is more if you cut off the power to a nuclear power plant, then the cooling systems stop working and then you can get something akin to a meltdown. So what needs to be encouraged here is for the Russians to look after responsibly that nuclear power station. So if you're taking into your control key infrastructure, again, I, I don't think they should be doing this, but given they are, they need to be encouraged to act responsibly and, and not allow that nuclear power plant to go into meltdown. I don't think there is any suggestion that they are going to plan to do that. Aaron, any, any final thoughts on the nuclear power issue? I mean, there's a second important line of thinking here, Michael, which is, of course, there's the climate crisis and we need to decarbonize our energy systems. And so what you already have beyond Ukraine, beyond what happened yesterday at this power station, is quite a polarized, fractured debate around nuclear energy. And I think it's, and people say, why are you talking about this? Why are you sort of, you know, defending the Russians or something like that? That's absolutely not what I'm doing. What I'm saying is we're going to have a conversation over the next 20, 30 years, which is actually existential for our species, about how do we decarbonize safely? I personally think nuclear is probably a part of that. I don't think that means we build masses of new nuclear power stations, but I don't think it means shutting them down like the Germans have. And I think particularly in colder countries in Northern Europe, where you have less solar capacity or potential, you have a long winter nights where you need to be warmer. I think personally, you need a baseline of about 10, 20% nuclear energy for the foreseeable future. And what, and what this kind of event can do is undermine confidence in nuclear power. It's, oh my God, there was almost a, and, and this will be in the, and this will be in circulation. This will be in the culture now, Michael. There was almost a Chernobyl style incident, which means, you know, nuclear energy is incredibly dangerous. Now, of course, it has downsized nuclear energy. Of course it does. Not decarboning, decarbonizing our energy systems in the next 30 years also has major downsides. And so I think it's one of those instances where 
we need a highly literate conversation around decarbonization, around nuclear energy. This kind of stuff is, is, is the last thing you want. You know, it's kind of effectively the tabloidization of a hugely, probably the most important political issue of our time, which is the climate crisis. That will be the most salient political issue, Michael, when we're old, you know, when we pass away, hopefully, you know, 70, 80 years from now, but probably not that long, but, you know, towards the end of the century. So I would say that, look, hugely important. And the idea that you'd undermine public confidence in that kind of technology on the basis of hearsay, rumor, or something which is simply untrue, I don't think that's acceptable. And I think you're right. Western journalists have a responsibility to tell the facts on this. It's important to say which leader is putting out the most misinformation right now. It is Vladimir Putin. There's no competition. But all parties in this conflict are going to be, you know, putting forward information with some interests involved. So you do have to use your critical faculties, whoever you're listening to, even if it's the side that you, you for good reason, I assume, like in, in this case. Let's go on to our next story. The International Criminal Court has opened an investigation into war crimes committed during Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Karim Khan is the ICC's chief prosecutor. He spoke to CNN about the decision. The quest is to get to the truth. Uh, you know very well, Christian, being in so many conflict zones, that truth is the first casualty of war. And so we, as the office of the prosecutor, need to resuscitate the truth and let it walk um, so that it can be properly assessed and judged. Um, so once we complete our investigations, uh, if there are people that are charged based upon evidence, uh, of course, then there's a multiplicity of uh, options from voluntary surrenders to, the, uh, to other methods to try to bring people to the court. Enforcement will be an obvious problem in this investigation and something indicting someone like Putin could in fact have unintended consequences. If he feels he has to stay in power to avoid being prosecuted, that may just give him a motive to try and win in Ukraine more decisively and to cling on to power at home. But Karim Khan is right. Truth is a casualty of war. Having independent investigators collect evidence can only be a good thing. So what will they be collecting evidence about? The most obvious war crime being committed at the moment is the apparent targeting of civilians by Russian airstrikes and artillery. This video shows the aftermath of a bombing in Cherniv, and we should warn you, it contains distressing scenes. It's just so, so horrible to view that beyond words. Bombing and artillery attacks are the most visible aspect of war, but it's possible the Russian military is also committing war crimes at a more local level, and some of their reported plans would certainly qualify. Kitty Donaldson is a journalist at Bloomberg. On Thursday, she reported new. Russia's intelligence agency, the Federal Security Service, has drafted plans for public executions in Ukraine after cities are captured, per a European intelligence official. I still, of course, remain deeply sceptical of these security briefings. I wouldn't take them at their word. But those briefings were more accurate than I expected when it came to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I wouldn't dismiss them out of hand. 
In any case, it's also important to stress that ICC will not only be investigating the Russians, they have confirmed they will be on the lookout for war, si- war crimes on all sides. Social media accounts connected to the Ukrainian army might already have given them some clues. Ukraine Special Forces published this on Wednesday. The translation is via Facebook. The SSO Brotherhood of Ukraine sends its greetings to the Russian artillery. We congratulate you after you bombarded our peaceful cities, our relatives, children, loved ones. You worms became our number one target. I'm going to skip to the final two paragraphs. From now on, there will be no more captured Russian artillery, no mercy, no please don't kill, I surrender, will be getting away. Every calculation, no matter, commander, driver, guide, charger, will be slaughtered like pigs. Tie your pants up, we've already come for you. Call your mum one last time, say you're going to die soon, jackal. We are not deaf, we are worse. Now, the promises being made in that Facebook post would also be war crimes. If if you're killing people who have surrendered, that is a war crime. The post has now been deleted. Another concerning tweet came from the Ukrainian National Guard. So they tweeted, Azov fighters of the National Guard greased the bullets with lard against the Kadarov orcs. Now, the Azov fighters are the neo-Nazi unit in the National Guard. The Kadarov Orcs is a reference to Chechen fighters who have been sent to fight alongside the Russian military in Ukraine. The Chechen leader is Ramzan Kadyrov, and Chechens are mostly Muslim. The video that accompanied the post from the Ukrainian National Guard purports to show a fighter from Ukraine's Azov battalion rubbing bullets with pig fat. He says, Dear Muslim brothers, in our country you will not go to heaven. You will not be allowed into heaven. Go home, please. Here you will encounter trouble. Thank you for your attention. Goodbye. Aaron, the the aggressor in this war is Russia. It's their armed forces that are indiscriminately shelling people. They're causing the civilian casualties here because you know this is a war that's being fought by them in in Ukraine. That does mean, I think, that some media outlets have been reluctant to cover some of the more distasteful elements of the the Ukrainian resistance. I mean, in particular, these these groupings of of, of neo Nazis and and far right elements in the the National Guard. They aren't a majority, by the way. We're not. We don't use this phrase that the Ukrainians are infested with neo-Nazis, no. But mm. but it's real. And if you are arming the resistance, you know, civil wars or wars of resistance, any kind of war tends to empower people at those extremes. So I do feel that it is important to report these things, even if we do need to be careful to say this is not to say this is just an even battle between both sides where each side are just as bad as each other. What do you, what do you make of this? Yeah, I think that's entirely right, Michael. And I think if if this does escalate further, and and the scenes we've seen in in the last seventy two hours really are reminiscent of Aleppo and Syria, and I think that's that's something which was unthinkable, Michael. We certainly got that wrong. We were open to the possibility of I'll speak for myself, but obviously we were talking about this repeatedly on the show, possibility of a conflict. But the idea the idea that it would be this intense, uh, the idea that it would, its extent would have this kind of scope, it is far. I I think we we really did not anticipate. And that's an important thing to concede. So the, uh, the, the specter of, for instance, public executions and so on, I mean, I, I didn't think we would see what we're seeing today. You know, major cities without water or electricity being bombarded and shelled for, for 20, 24 hours at a time. So given that, I think one shows some humility and says, well, you know, this is entirely plausible. And like you say, Michael, the Western intelligence on Ukraine has been significantly better than what it was on North Africa with Libya or with Afghanistan or with Iraq. So I think they've earned some credibility there for sure. The anecdote and the sort of meme of putting pig fat on bullets actually comes from the Chechen war, which is 
ironic, given the Chechens are now fighting for the Russian Federation. Uh, you saw tactics like that. You saw apparently tactics of dead Chechen soldiers who were wrapped up in uh, pigskins when they were being buried and so on. These are the sort of urban myths of the Second Chechen War, which was a butchery. And which, again, offers something of a, a blueprint, maybe a prototype for what this could descend into, worst case scenario. So I think, yes, we, we, we shouldn't rule these things out. And I think you're absolutely right to say that if that does happen, you can almost guarantee that the very worst aspects of those presently defending Ukraine will be empowered. The far right, neo-Nazis, ultranationalists, who, like you say, right now are a very small minority, but understandably, in this kind of context, people turn to quite extreme politics quite quickly. And it is a, it is a concern. Finally, when we're talking about neo-Nazism and fascism, you have you know major neo-Nazi ultranationalist gangs in, and organizations, paramilitary organizations, in Russia itself. So the idea that this process of denazification being conducted by the Russians in Ukraine, clearly absurd. But there is also a domestic problem there, which makes it all the more ridiculous. I think you are right, though, Michael. This notion that you give out Kalashnikovs and weapons to absolutely everybody, you know, there is a situation in Ukraine where there's the release of criminals and arming them. I, and of course, I understand that. I'm sure if we were in a similar situation in this country, I'm sure it would be under consideration. But it, it, it can have potential downsides. And I think if, if we are going to see investigations into war crimes, then of course, for, for the law to apply, and for it to be legitimate, it has to be applied equally. So, yes, that said, from what we're seeing so far, for instance, um, attacks on civilian populations using shells, using uh, helicopter gunships, using jet fighters, entirely asymmetric, entirely from one side. Let's go back to the topic of, of the investigation specifically and whether or not these laws are are implemented equally. Former British Prime Minister Gordon Brown was on the TV today. He suggested an international tribunal be set up to work in tandem with an investigation by the ICC. Here he explains why. It's entirely complementary to what the International Criminal Court and its lead prosecutor is actually doing now. He can investigate genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes. And that is within his remit and 39 countries have been calling him upon him and supporting him in doing so. But what he cannot do is investigate the crime of aggression, uh, a crime against peace, the invasion that actually took place uh, and the continuing aggression that is happening within the country. There's a gap in international law which uh, should not be allowed uh, not to be met. Uh, and President Putin is clearly... Uh, a president who has chosen on a route of aggression. He's replaced the rule of law by the use of force. He's replaced the principle of self-determination by some form of uh, imperialism that he's now pursuing in relation to Ukraine. And it's right that we bring him before an international tribunal. So that was Gordon Brown, who was Chancellor, the second most powerful person in the UK government when we entered into an illegal war of aggression against Iraq, who is now with a straight face going on TV and saying, oh, that's it. the problem with the ICC is that they can't take people to court for wars of aggression, which is the real problem in international law. I agree, wars of aggression, as we've spoken about in, in previous wars, they call it the, the highest war crime because it's the war crime from which all others follow. But he's pretty implicated when it comes to this. Aaron, what did you make of, of seeing Gordon Brown coming out and saying, the problem with international law is we don't deal tough enough with people who have entered into or have provoked, have started wars of aggression? I mean, it's almost funny, isn't it, Michael? 
it's surreal to watch. And for for critics of ours or, or Navarra skeptics, they'll watch this and obviously a, a ferocious, horrendous thing unfolding in Ukraine. And we're talking about Gordon Brown and the Iraq War. That's whataboutery. It's not whataboutery. The whole point of the law and the reason why it's legitimate is because it applies to everyone. Nobody obeys or listens to or adheres to or even acknowledges laws which only apply to some people. So if we're going to talk about illegal wars of aggression, which is what is going on right now in Ukraine, then absolutely we need to say that the West would have far more legitimacy on this very issue if we hadn't seen, broadly speaking, the precise same thing happen in 2003. And I have to say, Michael, as a British national, one of the more depressing features of the opening sort of days of this war I mean, now seeing what we're seeing is is so barbaric. I mean, it's 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 miserable. But before it got to that situation, you could sort of speculate on on why this is happening and how it's happening and the the lack of a legal basis to do it. And it made me so depressed because I thought, wow, this is exactly what we did in 2003 in Iraq. This is exactly what we did. We waged an illegal war of aggression in the name of humanitarianism, in the name of self-governance in the name of defending the, the rights of the very people that we were killing. And I know that's quite hard for some people who are in a British or American audience to listen to. That is exactly what happened. By 2014, you have ISIS emerging from the rubble and the ruins of Iraq's body politic. You have as many as a million people die. The country is far poorer with far lower living standards than even 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and it has a questionable future because of a war that we waged. Now, that doesn't mean things were hunky-dory before Saddam Hussein. He was a tyrant, and the country obviously was in no way uh, adhering to democratic norms and so on. But that didn't make the war that then happened any more legal. So, yes, this is a hugely important thing to highlight, because if we do want to build a rules-based international system, which I think we do, and people like Gordon Brown talk about it all the time, then that means the rules are going to have to apply to us as well. And I think, yes, it would be good to see Putin and the ICC. But you know what? I'd also like to see George Bush there. Here's the difference. The United States has mechanisms literally in place to invade The Hague if US nationals ever tried by the ICC. Now, you might be listening to this or watching this and thinking, what the hell is Aaron Bastani talking about? Google it. Hague Law, United States, American nationals. It will come up. There is absolutely no way, in, quote unquote, international law is going to be allowed to apply to US nationals. So again, it undermines the entire base of what law is meant to be. And finally, to turn to that point of what aboutery again, or oh, this bad thing's happening, why are you mentioning this other bad thing? That's what the USSR did. It's, the USSR had gulags and they, they, they murdered people. They didn't say, but what about this? Very ridiculous thing to claim, frankly. But it's not what aboutery. The base of ethical systems is reciprocity and permanence. Something which is bad today can't have been good 10 minutes ago, otherwise it, it wouldn't be bad. And reciprocity means you don't do something because I wouldn't do it. And I don't do something or I do do something because you would do it, right? So these are the very fundamentals of the rule of law and of ethical systems. Now, a five-year-old understands this stuff, but the, the libs who bang on about what aboutery don't appear to. And it really does confirm something, Michael. It, it takes a lot of books and a lot of learning to talk so much nonsense. I already had in my head that the US hadn't signed up to the ICC. I, I, I feel like I did have lodged in there somewhere this, this, this fact that they have a treaty where they would invade the Hague, but I'd forgotten about it. It was really, really remarkable. Next story. 
The US ambassador to the United Nations has warned that Russia is now threatening to invade Sweden and Finland. Speaking to the General Assembly, she said this. President Putin continues to escalate, putting Russia's nuclear forces on high alert, threatening to invade Finland and Sweden. At every step of the war, Russia has betrayed the United Nations. Russia's actions go against everything this body stands for. People across the world have already united together in exactly the way this General Assembly must do today. As far as we know, Russia hasn't explicitly threatened to invade Sweden or Finland, but they have been fairly threatening in response to speculation that Finland could join NATO. The Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs posted this to social media. It's a quote from their spokesperson. We regard the Finnish government's commitment to a military non-alignment policy as an important factor in ensuring security and stability in Northern Europe. And then the tweet says, Finland's accession to NATO would have serious military and political repercussions. So those military repercussions there is what seems so threatening. At the beginning of February, Putin also sent letters to the two countries demanding security guarantees which neither country has so far given him. This all, of course, sounds fairly familiar. After all, it's exactly the story that led to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yet there are differences. Unlike Ukraine, both are already members of the EU and so benefit from the European defence commitments. Unlike Ukraine, neither country has ever expressed a strong interest in joining NATO. That's until now. Deutsche Welle report that support for joining the military alliance has surged in both countries. In 2017, only 19% of Finns wanted to join NATO. That's now gone up to 53%. In 2017, 32% of Swedes wanted to join NATO. That's gone up to 41%. In both countries, a majority against joining NATO has turned into a majority for joining. Aaron, Putin would often say that his, his biggest gripe with Ukraine was that it might join NATO and he was very opposed to the eastern expansion of NATO. Has this manoeuvre from his perspective really backfired because now everyone wants to be part of NATO or even these countries that have ruled it out beforehand? Yeah, I mean, more more ridiculous, I think, um, are calls for Ireland to join NATO and Switzerland. And you think Swiss, Switzerland's been neutral, I think, 500 years. I don't know the exact numbers, but I mean, the, the very essence of the Swiss nation is is neutrality. It stayed neutral, I, I believe, Michael, during the Second World War. Now, I don't know the specifics of, the, of, of any legal treaties it had, but it, it, it doesn't join alliances like NATO. With regards to Finland, where the polling shifted the most, I mean, given the size of their land border, given the history they have with Russia, I think it's entirely reasonable. I, I personally, I'm a skeptic of NATO because of what's happened in Libya, what's happened in Afghanistan, because of the very roots of it after the Second World War. I think after, even if you supported NATO after the end of the USSR, it was an organization in search of a role. And, and what I haven't really had explained to me is if Europe needs a form of collective defense against the Russian Federation, which I think Ukraine would indicate that's true, and I, I buy that, I don't quite get why it has to be NATO. Surely the argument then is for an independent European Defense Force, European army. You've got two nuclear powers in Europe, Britain and France, high levels of technological sophistication, massive military uh, contractors and defense companies in Finn Mechanica in Italy. You've got Saab in Sweden, German companies, British companies, French companies, Spanish companies. So th- this idea of NATO, I think it's almost like a strange 
argument that people were having 30, 40, 50 years ago. I think clearly there needs to be a collective security arrangements for Europe. Of course they do, given what's happening. The idea that it's going to be based on the United States entering what would have to be World War Three, like the next major war that NATO is involved in would be World War Three. I don't quite understand why that's the default of the conversation. Sweden's a bit different. I mean, the polling hasn't shifted there as much. A plurality uh, wants to join NATO, but not a majority, which suggests it's kind of more open to debate. I don't believe they have a border with Russia. Norway does. It's already a member, tiny border up in the north near Murmansk. Finland, as I've said, has a huge border. Sweden doesn't. It would have to be invaded through the north, relatively small landmass compared to Finland. And it has you know 200 years of neutrality behind it, Sweden. So Sweden, I, I would be surprised if they join NATO. Finland, I have to say, if I was Finnish, I'd certainly, I'd certainly understand the arguments. But for me now, Michael, if you're seeing the Germans talk about increasing defense spending to 2% of GDP, et cetera, et cetera, surely that's the moment then to generate a conversation around what a European army looks like. I, I'm not saying I support that. I'm just saying it seems a more sensible approach. And maybe that's an, that's an appendage to NATO. But surely that seems like a more sensible approach than saying there's this military alliance which existed since 1945 and it involves the North Americans. And that's that's how we talk about defense in, you know, Northeast Europe. I've, I find that a bit strange, but I'm happy to be corrected. The point about why we have to tie up with America is quite interesting, especially considering that Donald Trump could be president in two years' time. So it seems like two years ago, everyone was saying Europe needs complete independence from NATO because America is governed by a madman. Now, two years into Biden's rule, everyone seems to have suddenly forgotten that that happened and assumed it won't happen again. We'll come back to this. I do want to go through some details about Sweden and Finland because they are, as Aaron has suggested, very interesting countries in terms of defence. Finland shares a 1,340-kilometre border with Russia and has maintained a powerful army for the 80 years since the two countries last went to war. Its active military personnel stands at 280,000. That's 30,000 larger than Ukraine's and universal male conscription holds. So basically half the population are trained combatants. Sweden, on the other hand, has maintained neutrality for over 200 years. But since 2014, it too has been investing heavily in its military following a number of Russian incursions into its territory. In 2018, tensions with Russia were so high that the Swedish government sent a pamphlet to every household with guidance about what to do in the event of a war. So far, though, Sweden's prime minister has been clear that membership is not on the table, saying Sweden has been alliance-free for an extremely long time. It has served Sweden's interest well. The demand, and actually apparently Reuters have come out with a poll which shows that there is now actually 51% support for Sweden. It seems to be changing every day or going up every day. I suppose these threats from Vladimir Putin are probably helping um, the people who want the country to join NATO. There's almost like a bottom-up demand now, it seems. It's the electorates that want to join NATO instead of the leaders. What, what do you make of that? Do you, would you persuade people against that? I mean, this invasion of Ukraine, the extent of it, well, I still am critical of, of, of NATO's eastern expansion. I think that the West should have tried to integrate Russia into its military infrastructure and security infrastructure rather than sort of build up a, a big defense against it. But at the same time, you know, if you're in Estonia, Lithuania or Latvia, you're thinking, God, thank God we joined NATO when mm. we did. I think you're right, Michael. I think the question about why couldn't Russia join NATO in the mid-1990s, and, and the answer was, of course, well, the whole point of NATO is it's set up against Russia. Well, if there are no conditions under which it can join, I mean, then it's going to naturally understand others joining it as, as a hostile act, because it literally can't join this club, which therefore means that the, the basis of that club is to 
defend against Russia. Obviously, at that point, Russia was incredibly weak. You know, 1998, Russia was Russia was getting food aid, right? That's how that's how broken it was by you know um, sort of shock doctrine market reforms we had <clears throat> over the 1990s. So I do I do sympathise with them, Michael. And I have to say, you know, somebody sitting down in Britain, we've got nuclear weapons, we're an island. It would be very strange to say to a Finn looking at all of this, saying, oh, no, you don't need to join NATO. Because if I was a Finn, I, I would, I think, reasonably be concerned that what's going on in Ukraine could happen to my country. And that's a reasonable concern. I mean, it's likely, and that's reflected in, you know, not everybody wants to join NATO in, in Finland. But I think it's a reasonable concern. And I, I think how this plays out, look, if there's, a, if there's a peace negotiation next week and Russia leaves and it just goes to Donetsk and Luhansk and uh, there's a neutral Ukraine. Maybe that's going to inflect the debate somewhat. I think the worst things get the worst things get in Ukraine. Then I, I think the, the more the public in Finland in particular will, will move and harden towards a pro NATO position. So I totally get it. You know, and, and, and Finnish politics. You know, the Finnish government is very much on the left. Sanna Marin, yeah, young left wing prime minister. The left controls the government there. Very progressive. You know, I'm not saying they're sort of right wing sellouts. What I would say though, Michael, is what Finns also have to bear in mind is if they join NATO, when Libya is bombed and you get open-air slave markets as a result and a collapse in living standards and warlords and gangs running the country, remember that you're implicated in that. Um, so there's a trade-off there. And of course, NATO hasn't done what it's meant to do for, for so long. And so it had these kind of escapades in Afghanistan and Libya. Afghanistan and Libya are nowhere near the North Atlantic, Michael. I would say that to our our listeners and our, our viewers, look at a map. It, it can tell you NATO's gone awry if that's that's the missions it's um, it's undertaking. Clearly, this is what NATO's for, however, uh, a defense against Russian aggression. I think some of the arguments which have been made as well prior to the, to the war, us included, were highly rational based on realpolitik, based upon, well, Russia is only going to be interested in maximizing its rational self-interest, right? And I, I, I think we have to suspend that presumption for a while and be open to the possibility that actually Putin and the role of Russian ultranationalism and the, the role of a quote-unquote civilizational ideology is far more central here than perhaps material interests. I mean, otherwise, what he's doing, Michael, is entirely inexplicable. And so given that, I, I think it is probably quite reasonable for Eastern Europe in particular, when I say Eastern Europe, I'm including Germany, which is increasing defense spending, but Poland, Finland, I can understand why they'd want to harden their relations towards Russia. You also had, of course, news of Moldova wanting to join the European Union, et cetera, et cetera. I think these are all rational, explicable things. I just think there's a big downside if you're from these countries and you don't want to be involved in the next Libya or Afghanistan. Final story. This is Ben Elliott. He's co-chairman of the Conservative Party, but he's also co-founder of a business quintessentially is a lifestyle management service catering to the luxury desires of the super rich. And that includes super rich Russians, both in London and Moscow. Of course, given current events, that is now embarrassing for the Conservatives. And the Russia page on the quintessentially website has been promptly removed. Before going into details about quintessentially, let's give you Elliot's background. It tells us a fair bit about how Britain's establishment works. Like Boris Johnson, Elliot was educated at Eton. It meant he had a head start in courting Britain's elite. And that wasn't all. His ticket into the very height of the British establishment was also secured by a famous 
relative. Elliot is nephew to Camilla Parker Bowles, the Duchess of Cornwall, and the future queen consort once Charles takes the throne. Those connections meant Elliot was well-suited to become a fundraiser for the party of Britain's elites. In 2016, he was treasurer to Zach Goldsmith's campaign to become London mayor. He became co-chairman of the Tory party in 2019. Elliot's high society connections have since allowed him to raise £70 million in donations for the party, including from Lubov Chinokin, wife of Vladimir Chinukin, former deputy finance minister under Putin. So Elliot has been a busy boy. And while raking in cash for the governing party, he has still managed to keep up his side hustle. Quintessentially, charges up to $40,000 per year for membership in exchange for servicing the extravagant desires of its clients. Those include everything from arranging luxury cars and accommodations, access to exclusive events, and even in one case, allegedly shutting down Sydney Harbour Bridge so a client could have the place to himself while he proposed to his girlfriend. Quintessentially work in cities around the world, including Moscow. This was the now taken down page for that branch. The webpage explains that Quintessentially has 15 years experience providing luxury lifestyle management to Russia's elite. And I love this quote from their Russian CEO. Russia is vast and rich, yet at the same time it is historically a place where even the richest have proven to have concierge needs. Previously, there have been shortages. It is not enough to simply have money. One has to have proper contacts to maximize the use of that money. And this is what we're good at here at Quintessentially. We know and can connect you to the right people. Testimonial on their website gives some more details. They say, thank you for sourcing the Rolex Submariner 116610LN in Moscow for me. It saved me from a two-year wait through the official dealership. As I say, that page is down from the English language website. The firm's Russian language website remains active. Its slogan is, access the inaccessible, achieve the impossible. As you would imagine, given we're dealing with the Russian super rich, multiple quintessentially clients have close ties to Putin. Sources have told the Financial Times that oligarch Roman Abramovich is one of the company's clients. Another is Mikhail Lesin, a former advisor to Putin. That's not all. Quintessentially has also developed an app for Russia's third largest bank, Gazprom Bank, which was notably not included in the list of finance houses to be removed from the SWIFT money transfer system. Quintessentially, of course, caters to elites from all across the world, but they do seem to value their Russian clients. In 2013, Elliot told the Gentleman's Journal... We added a dedicated Russian team to our London offices due to the influx in Russian-speaking clients coming into London. So we're still doing very well within the Russian market. Why am I telling you all of this? You might think that while quintessentially is a little bit cringe, it probably won't affect the workings of our governing party. Well, it turns out Elliot hasn't been too successful at separating his business interests from his job as co-chair of the Conservatives. In 2021, Elliot was implicated in a cash-for-access scandal. He was then accused of giving his business's clients access to top politicians and the royal family. And the UK lobbying regulator went on to warn Elliot he needed to draw a clear line between his private interests and public duties. The regulator warned him to be cautious about the possibility of engaging in consultant lobbying activity, perhaps unintentionally, by not making a clear enough distinction between his role as a director of Quintessentially and his other activities connected to government. 
The Labour Party has now written to the Prime Minister calling for Ben Elliott to be sacked. Annalise Dodd said, The Conservatives have raked in £1.96 from Putin-linked donors since Boris Johnson made Ben Elliott chair of the party. The PM can't claim he's serious about tackling Russian dirty money while also retaining Mr Elliott. He must be removed immediately. Aaron, a lot is said about Tory connections to wealthy Russians. Sometimes I think it's overblown. Sometimes it seems pretty reasonable as a concern. How how big a deal do you think this is and this story about Ben Elliott is? It's part of the party's DNA, Michael. And I don't say that lightly. If you look at, for instance, Lord Feldman, who was a close friend of David Cameron, he comes in in 2005 after Cameron wins the party leadership. At that point, the Tory party is £28 million in debt. And over the course of 10 years, between 2005 and 2015, he helps raise a quarter of a billion pounds for the Conservative Party. A quarter of a billion, 250 million pounds over 10 years. Now, for an American audience, that might not sound like much. In British politics, it's huge, particularly then. I think bigger money's come into British politics with obviously Corbynism doing so well and, and a mass membership feeding money into Labour. SNP have got bigger funders in recent years. UKIP got big money through the likes of Aaron Banks, of course, you know, the, the campaign to leave the European Union, et cetera. But between 2005 and 2015, it was extraordinary. And I think there was really a compact between oligarchical, ultra-elite wealth and the Conservative Party to fund its return to power ahead of 2010, to the aftermath financial crisis. And of course, the Conservative Party has always been an expression of elite interests. That's his raison d'etre. Of course, it's a, it, it, it is a political party, in essence, for the land ruling, uh, the landowning elite. That's the point of the Tories for 250 years. But something does decisively change after 2005, and this openness to oligarchical wealth, including people who, who you know, 15, 20 years earlier, probably wouldn't have been around the ambit of British politics. But because London becomes this entrepot, as I don't like to use non-English words when you're talking to a, you know an English-speaking audience, but it's the best word for it, this kind of, this, this nutribullet of uh, foreign wealth, you know, going into London, shaking it all about, buying ultra-expensive London properties, buying football clubs, buying British brands, basing themselves here, getting the tier one visas. That really does take off really after, after 2000. It goes on steroids after the Cameron government in 2010. And so, like I said, there is this compact between elite wealth, not always coming from the UK, increasingly not coming from the UK, actually, and the Conservative Party. And we're seeing that continue after Feldman. Feldman left, I think, in 2015. He kind of wraps up. And that's kind of continuing here. But it's, it is the basis of the Conservative Party revenue generation model in the 21st century, is subsidy and funding from elite oligarchical interests. That could change. They want to become a national populist party. I think that peak has probably already come and, and gone. Maybe not. But it's a big question. You know, how will they fund political operations, general election campaigns, which are hugely expensive uh, in the absence of, of, of such people? I suspect they can, but it's going to be much, much more difficult. He's not the co-chair because he's good at running a party. He's a co-chair because he has very, very high value connections. And as you can see, this is a sort of international oligarchic elite which this guy services in in quintessentially so you can it's not difficult to see what's going on there aaron thank you so much for joining me this evening michael it was my pleasure thank you all for joining us tonight we'll be back on monday at 7 p.m for now you've been watching tisky sour on navara media good night
This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.